Jim Trusty is an attorney with 28 years experience as a prosecutor, first in the state of Maryland and later with the U.S. Justice Department in Washington, D.C. He has worked as an attorney for Donald Trump on a couple of his pending cases. However, in June of last year, Mr. Trusty withdrew from representing former President Trump, citing irreconcilable differences. However, in his public appearances, Jim Trusty remains a critic of the different prosecutors and their approach to Mr. Trump. Hey, it's Caitlin from C-SPAN. Did you know that C-SPAN has been serving the American people for 45 years? Since our founding in 1979, C-SPAN has been documenting history with a unique approach, unfiltered, without commentary, and entirely independent from government funding. C-SPAN is funded by fees from our cable and satellite distribution partners. And now, with fewer people subscribing to cable and satellite, we're asking you to help support our next 45. Your contribution helps to ensure that we can continue to provide unfiltered, complete coverage of government proceedings on TV, online, on radio, and our mobile app, as well as context through newsletters, social media, and podcasts. Join us in preserving this legacy of access to the democratic process. Make your tax-deductible donation today at cspan.org slash donate. Thank you. Jim Trustee, what went into your decision to represent Donald Trump in these cases that we are, read about and talk about every day? Well, it was a number of things. I mean, the first part is, you know, as a lawyer, you have to recognize that your client's politics don't necessarily control you. And uh, I've had clients from all over the political spectrum. I represented Hope Solo, the soccer player. She's about as far left on the political spectrum as it gets. And, and we're good friends. I, and I actually have a lot of affection for her, went to her induction into the Soccer Hall of Fame. So, you know, it doesn't dictate whether you take a case or not, depending on your political view. But, you know, what I learned early on into the representation of President Trump was that the Department of Justice in particular was playing by different rules than I had ever seen as a prosecutor. And that made it, I think, a much more uh, comfortable or easier position to be in as an attorney because you're not really focusing on the politics. You're focusing on what's, what's coming at your client from the other side. From what you know, having worked in the Justice Department, what are they up to? Well, I, I think there's a lot of very bad, bad in terms of how DOJ has conducted itself from, from the get-go. And, you know, I look back to the starting point when Mar-a-Lago was raided in, in August, August 8th. About three days later, four days later, the attorney general had an impromptu press conference and basically said, I want to show the world the warrant, in other words, the signature page from the judge, as well as the inventory. In other words, what what do they allege they collected uh, from Mar-a-Lago? And, and that's really kind of an extraordinarily bad moment. That's not how you're supposed to operate in the context of people that have not been indicted, that are not going to trial at that point. We were a long way off from him being charged. And so it was, a, you know, from what I learned as a prosecutor, as a state prosecutor for 10 years before I went federal, I had a boss that took it very seriously about ethics and about the wielding power with grace, you know, because you have a surprising amount of power over people's lives as a prosecutor. And uh, the, the notion that you would ever go out and have a press conference to essentially say, hey, a judge let me do this and he's really guilty uh, was foreign to that boss. And that sticks with me. So. That's how this thing started. There's been a whole bunch of other bumps on the road in terms of, I think, over-aggression of, of being creative. And I guess, Brian, that, that would be kind of my my ultimate comment on this is however you classify the specific examples, they fall into a category of, of a self-righteousness and a, and a desire to be creative to go after President Trump. And when you're talking about any former president, anybody of his stature in terms of the political scene, running for president, I would like to see transparency and I'd like to see familiarity. In other words, if you have a bribery case, you bring it and nobody's going to question whether that's not criminal. But when you take things like the Presidential Records Act and you ignore how DOJ is treated and how the National Archivist has treated uh, classified matters up until Donald Trump and Donald Trump only, it, it just causes a lot of concern. And I view it not even just from the lens of what happens to President Trump in this election, but are we really you know, metamorphizing our, our criminal justice system, are we transforming our criminal justice system into something that we don't recognize because it's target first evidence later. How well do you know the special prosecutor, Jack Smith? 
Yeah, Jack and I overlapped at Maine Justice. You know, I was a assistant U.S. attorney in Maryland before I went down to D.C. and, and uh, ended up taking over the organized crime and gang section. But when I was the chief of organized crime and gang section, I don't remember the exact number of, of uh, years, but I know we had some overlap where Jack was at Public Integrity. And uh, and then Jack went down to Nashville, Tennessee as the first assistant and eventually as the acting U.S. attorney. And we had some gang cases down there. So, you know, I knew I knew Jack as a colleague uh, from from DOJ. It's a little different than seeing how he operates uh, in, in running these types of investigations. But there was no pre-existing bad blood between us. I can certainly say that. What do you think of the way he's handled this job? Uh, a lot of concern. Uh, you know, I, I think this feels like a um, a target in search of evidence and, and criminalizing what happened in Mar-a-Lago to me is absurd. I mean, when you've had every modern day president, when they've turned over documents to the National Archives, every single time there's testimony in front of the committee uh, on this, every time they find documents that are marked classified, it is routine. And that's because we, it's a sloppy situation. It needs some institutional fixes in terms of how documents are preserved, maintained, recollected. But at the end of the day, we're just used to entrusting our presidents to have access to that kind of information. And so when uh, President Obama had thousands of classified documents in a warehouse in Illinois, nobody blinked. Uh, you know, when, when they apparently didn't blink too hard in Delaware when it came to a non-president, uh, at the time, Vice President Biden or Senator Biden having these documents. And so there's institutional things that need to be fixed but everything about that case in particular strikes me as an overreach, as something that was not criminal until Donald Trump arrived. And January 6th is going to be a you know, totally different type of case. But again, it's plagued with a little bit of creativity. You know, they're trying an insurrection case, but not calling it an insurrection case. They're calling it a fraud against the United States. And I just don't like the thought that prosecutors go out on these kind of uh, academic limbs because they're so interested in in trying a case. And trying a case before the election, which is another whole issue about speedy trial that I think I have a lot of concerns with. What cases did you work on for Donald Trump? Uh, well, originally I was actually involved in some of his defamation explorations, but uh, that, that quickly changed on August 8th when I got word that the FBI was down at Mar-a-Lago. So I was primarily on Mar-a-Lago in January 6th. Uh, maybe thankfully I was not involved in uh, New York or Georgia cases. Why did you step away from representing Donald Trump? Well, I think we just got to a point where there was, uh, it was, you know, a very, I think, mutual decision. And it was one that I, you know, again, I think I owe any former client the loyalty to uh, to not go into it and do the kiss and tell kind of game. And so I appreciate the question, but generally speaking, I, I don't answer it. I will say that, you know, I think the president and I remain on pleasant terms. I mean, there's no acrimony there, but it was kind of time to move on. I'd been on the case for a year. It was a very hectic existence for a long time, and I'm glad I was on it, but I was also glad to pivot away with uh, John Rowley, one of my colleagues, and Tim Parlatori. When you do represent former President Trump, how well do you get to know him? You get to know him pretty well. Uh, you know, look, he's he's obviously an incredibly busy guy. Uh, I'm sure that's only, in, in, you know, increased in recent months. Um, but he's he's kind of the same person you see out on the stump or out on, in public or, you know, from uh, press conferences. I mean, there's a there's not like a dramatic change when you talk to him behind closed doors and what you see. And I like that. I mean, I like having a client who is pretty authentic and that doesn't kind of turn it on and turn it off. I'd say about the only difference is he cusses more when it's private. Uh, but but other than that, he's pretty much the same guy. What would you tell another attorney that you're not associated with in particular who picks the phone up, calls you and says, Jim, I get a chance to represent Donald Trump. Give me some insight into what I have to be aware of. That's a great question. Uh, and, and one I probably won't answer too much, but I, I would just say that, you know, look, you have to, you have to go into it knowing like you would in any white collar case with like a, a high level executive that you're going to have a client who's extremely opinionated, who's used to being, you know, very much in control of his situation. And that's difficult for any of these like C-suite executives to kind of realize that they need the lawyer to explain things and to develop the strategy and to to tell them no sometimes. And, 
you know, I think there's a, a the higher they are in the rank of things, the, the easier the temptation is to just be kind of a yes man and and change your own stripes, you know, either tactically or strategically or even ethically. And you've got to be careful about that. You got to be on guard. There's a lot of obviously political influence when you're talking about a person running for president, as it would be if you're, you know, representing somebody that was running for Congress. Um, and you just have to kind of stick stick to your own uh, knowledge of law, of criminal investigations, of the ethics that are associated with all that, and recognize there's going to be times where you know the client, like any client, is going to get frustrated with you. As you know, there are a lot of lawyers involved uh, today representing uh, the former president. When you work for him in, in any of these cases, is there somebody around him that you go through on, this, on, on legal issues? Yeah, I probably can't answer that one except to say that, you know, he he, like a lot of high powered clients, uh, is going to have a lot of voices, uh, you know, a lot of people talking to him. And sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's decidedly not. Um, but, you know, the, the structure of the relationship and the communications is not something I'm comfortable talking about for any former client. Can you say anything about that defamation suit against CNN and why you dropped out of that? Well, I dropped out for the same reason. I mean, I, I was not um, in a position where I just felt like obsessed with being around, you know, Mar-a-Lago or being around the president. If I'm not going to be, you know, taking the lead on stuff, I don't want to just stick around for the sake of sticking around. And, um, you know, what was interesting is, that, you know, so that just left with me. It wasn't any sort of comment on the nature of the case. The case ended up getting dismissed. And that's not a total shock because defamation cases for public figures are really difficult. Um, and, and we even pitched, you know, kind of consistent with some comments Justice Thomas has made that maybe maybe it's time to revisit the uh, New York Times, uh, the Sullivan case in terms of what that high standard of malice is. What's kind of interesting to me uh, and the, kind of the joke to me is that CNN, the, you know, the most trusted name in news, basically got the dismissal by admitting everything they do is opinion, <laughs> which is a valid defense to defamation. But it kind of cracks me up like. You know, we're the most trusted name in news. But by the way, everything we do is just opinion. And that that won the day on the defamation, although I wonder if people look into it if they don't have some question marks about about the news. I know you appear on there from time to time. You've been on the Jake Tapper show. Uh, why do they invite you and why do you go? Well, I'm just eye candy, clearly. Um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, when we were when I was representing the president, you know, we made a conscious decision to start going out on some. And it wasn't like a day to day thing. There was too much work to do to go on all the time. But we would make a decision like, look, if I go on Fox, if I go on Newsmax or Fox Business, I'm probably not really changing a lot of minds. I'm informing people and maybe reconfirming some of the thoughts they have about what's happening with President Trump. But we actually thought kind of tactically, as we were trying to head off indictments and we were trying to suggest that there was, you know, some some fairly, fairly bad politics taking place, that if we went on to some places like CNN, platforms like CNN or even MSNBC, that, you know, maybe we could talk reason and maybe we could show people that we're not just a bunch of bomb throwing politicized lawyers, that we actually know something about prosecution, know something about due process. Um, and I guess that just kind of stuck. I mean, I took a while off where I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to do the kiss and tell thing, which I know right after I left, I was going to have a lot of journalists saying, you know, come on, we'll, we'll give you ice cream. And we just want to ask you why you left. And, um, you know, I avoided that for a while. And then as I've gotten back into it, I have said yes to CNN a number of times. Um, it's kind of fun. It's kind of feisty. I mean, it's a different it's US fear than I would get conservative-leaning network, but I've been a trial lawyer for a long time, so I'm kind of used to having people pepper me with questions, fair or unfair, and uh, and I find it enjoyable, and I also think there's probably some people out there that, you know, could at least reconsider their thoughts about how this is playing out across the country. In a previous podcast, we talked to Glenn Kirshner, 30 years a prosecutor in this town, and I want to let you hear just a little bit of what he says and get your reaction to it. What I've been saying is when you look at Donald Trump's unabated string of losses in his civil cases, E. Jean Carroll 1, E. Jean Carroll 2, New York civil fraud trial, um, that is powerful foreshadowing for what's going to happen once he is in his criminal cases, but it's going to go much worse for him. Um, and that's why I say he's done. 
your reaction? Uh, he who laughs last. I mean, Glenn is a very politicized guy. I know I knew him as a homicide prosecutor. I certainly respected his work doing homicide cases in D.C. And some of that, I think, was during, at least at the time, what seemed like the heyday of, of a high murder rate in Washington. So I kind of viewed him, and I, I did a lot of blue-collar work, too. I did, you know, homicides, but in Montgomery County didn't exactly have the numbers of, of D.C. Uh, but we would have some overlap. I certainly got along with him as a prosecutor. But, uh, you know, it's it's a little over-the-top political. I mean, he's having kind of a, you know, a parade at the president's expense. And, you know, maybe he ends up being right, but I think that there's a lot of issues with the Alvin Bragg case. The Georgia case seems like a comedy of errors from the get-go. I mean, starting with having a grand jury four-person do a media tour that was just cringeworthy uh and then having the clerk's office leak an indictment but then kind of lie about it no that's not what we did and now you've got the whole you know the whole conflict of interest uh game playing out with uh Fonnie Willis uh, who was a you know pretty pretty uncontrollable disrespectful witness but I, I heard a lot of people that love courtroom decorum get real quiet last week uh, you know, where they were happy to talk about it in New York with President Trump, but they got real quiet about, you know, Fonnie Willis. So I'm not sure that those cases are uh, all that great, this, those two state cases. Look, a federal trial in D.C. for January 6th, if you, if you play kind of percentages, if you're going to bet on this stuff, that's uphill. The bench has proven very hostile to President Trump. You know, they blew up attorney-client privilege, executive privilege you know, historic moments in this country that they just kind of went right through. And now the privileged material makes its way into these indictments. The jury selection is going to be incredibly difficult uh, for, for the Trump lawyers. And so I think, you know, January 6th is a tough case to, a lot because of the venue and because of the emotions that are associated with January 6th. But I think the Mar-a-Lago trial, I, I think from what I know of it from the inside, there's some pretty powerful pretrial motions to come. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity there for, for a judge to actually get rid of the whole case. But if it goes to trial, very different jury pool, very different bench in terms of their level of activeness. And I think that, um, you know, that's, I think that's actually a crapshoot. I think that the, the obstruction part of it has been overblown for purposes of distinguishing him from Joe Biden. And so when it really plays out in trial in South Florida, I think that one's going to be a close call. Judge Aileen Cannon is the judge in Florida for the documents case. And you notice that all the partisans come out immediately and say, we not sure what we're going to get out of here because she was appointed by Donald Trump. What do you think of that tactic? Yeah, I think it's unfair. I mean, look, it's not that the other side doesn't do it too. I understand that, you know, who appointed a, a judge or justice is almost the second line of every every news story that comes out. Uh, and that's kind of unfortunate. I know Justice Roberts has bemoaned that fact as well, that we've kind of, you know, legitimized the political uh, view of how judge and justices work. Uh, look, I was in front of her for some litigation early on in the case. I, I was impressed. I thought she was very steady, very much uh, in control of the courtroom, not, you know, giving me a high five or a wink or anything. I mean, it was not something where there was any sense of, of unfairness to how she was approaching it. I think what she has done, if you look at just the procedure part, I think it's a good sign, which is, and I don't mean that for President Trump, I mean for justice, small j justice. She has basically said, let's see how we go through this process of discovery. Let's see how we manage the very difficult and time-consuming issue of dealing with classified materials in a public trial. There's a whole kind of bureaucratic apparatus that kicks in that usually adds about a year to a case. And what she has said in South Florida is, you know, I'm going to tentatively go to trial maybe in May, but I want to keep hearing from the parties. Let's see where it's going. And by the way, when we get to the point of setting a trial date, I will consider everybody's calendar. In other words, if you say as a lawyer, judge, I have a trial in Texas on Tuesday, I can't do it. She's going to listen. That is the norm in federal court practice. That is how you normally see judges schedule, particularly non-incarcerated defendants going to trial. What's not the norm is what we've seen in Washington, which is we've got to do this by Super Tuesday asserting special uh, a speedy trial right for the public, which is borderline nonsensical. Uh, but the trial judge also saying, you know, I'm not going to consider schedules. I want to get this thing done. Uh, I don't think for a case of this profile and this magnitude that that's the right approach. So I'm heartened by Judge Cannon taking a much more traditional outlook, uh, at least towards kind of the scheduling and managing of the case. We'll see how it goes at trial and motions. But so far, I think she's shown herself to be pretty professional. I'm sure you know Mark Levin and 
when I talked to Glenn Kirshner, I ran a clip of him saying some very strong pro-Trump things and anti the other side. Here's a 30 seconds of Glenn Kirshner's reaction. I'll get yours. Whether it's an honestly held belief or I think there are plenty of snake oil salesmen out there who understand the value of yelling and screaming that everything is a witch hunt, Donald Trump more so than anybody because the money continues to flow into his coffers. Unfortunately, he continues to fool the gullible. And I really think it's primarily the gullible that are being fooled. Um, so, no, I don't I don't really buy into that hysterical notion that this whole thing is a witch hunt or a political hit job because I've seen no evidence of that. Mr. Trusty. Yeah, well, shockingly, we disagree. Um, I mean, look, he, you know, what I really hate to hear in that is kind of the, the, the cultural elitist component of, you know, he's just fooling the gullible. In other words, if you hate Trump, you're on the side of wisdom and everybody else is being fooled by a snake oil salesman. And I will say this in terms of Mark Levin, who I have a lot of respect for and I do like, uh, whatever you think about Mark Levin, it's genuine. I mean, he's not sitting there raising his voice and getting angry about the future of the Democratic Republic because he thinks it's fun. Uh, I, I think he's a very sincere person. You can disagree with the substance of what he says, but to like suggest that you know anyone on the other side is a snake oil salesman and all we're doing is fooling the dummies. Yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of elitism that got Trump elected. It's this you know these people that think it's just impossible to conceive of supporting someone like Donald Trump. Uh, and, and in terms of evidence, I'm just one little aside because there's a lot of stories we could get into. There was an accusation from a very, uh, very well-respected attorney in D.C. that early into the case involving Mar-a-Lago, that he was brought into the office at Maine Justice by one of the deputies for Jack Smith, who's still on the case. And in that meeting, that deputy blackmailed him, basically said, You're, you've got a pending judgeship in front of President Biden. You've been nominated for a judgeship, and he's reviewing it. I'd sure hate to have you mess that up. You really need to flip your client against President Trump. Now, I don't know when and how that's going to get full daylight. It's been reported on. It's out there. There was a re It was reported that the attorney actually filed an affidavit with the district court in D.C. right before D.C. shifted the whole case to Florida at the last minute. Um, but if that's true, that's the most alarming thing you can imagine, right? This is a, a DOJ lawyer obstructing justice in the name of going after President just one little vignette, but that's out there. So when Glenn announces, I've seen no evidence of anything, well, you're, you're being pretty selective in terms of what you're seeing because there's a lot of stories out there that are suggestive of, of an ends justify the means mentality. When Alvin Bragg ran the district attorney in um, Manhattan in New York County, ran in 2021, he got 86 point. 83.6% of the vote, and the Republican opponent got 163 What does that say about what Donald Trump's facing on March the 25th? Yeah, I mean, New York is, feels like a little bit of a buzzsaw when it comes to the jury pool and to the bench. Um, yeah, so that's tough. I, I, look, but you also have to remember what that case is about. I mean, that's a case that Alvin Bragg passed on originally, and then mysteriously it suddenly got some traction with him. And it really comes down to two witnesses. It comes down to Stormy Daniels and to Michael Cohen. And I think anybody that's even watched, you know, Perry Mason once or twice would love to get a chance at cross-examining Michael Cohen. I mean, that, that that is like a guy that wears a minefield around his uh, his suit. I mean, you can kind of touch anywhere and it's going to explode. So, you know, I, I think it would be it would be entertaining if nothing else. Uh, again, it's it's creative. They had to use this creativity to avoid the statute of limitations. They've got this fundamental issue of trying to cite federal election law as a basis for a state claim. And that's that creativity thing that I think is a real problem here when it comes to President Trump. So, uh, you know, much like the E. Jean Carroll litigation, it may be that the better opportunity to, to kind of even the scales comes on appeal. Uh, just because the judges you know, don't have a lot of time for President Trump in New York and the jury pool is going to be rough. But we'll see. I mean, that's that's not a great case under any scenario. And you could just have a few jurors say this is a bridge too far to, to ask me to believe Michael Cohen is a paragon of honesty. So if you were the attorney for Donald Trump in New York and you had to start picking the jury on the 25th of March, 
what would you be looking for? And what kind of power would you have? I don't mean power is a bad word, but what kind of, <clears throat> of uh, con how can you affect that, uh, that jury pool in any way? Yeah, well, a lot of that comes down to the, the nitty gritty of how the court conducts the voir dire, the jury selection process. You know, if it is a if it is a typical judicial voir dire where the judge you submit questions, but the judge is the one that really controls most of the flow and unless there's some follow up, that's going to be uphill because, you know, I think I think this is a real danger in any of the cases for Donald Trump. You're going to have people that lie to get on the jury that have very strong opinions. It could be in the opposite direction if you get down to South Florida. But when you're talking about New York and D.C., I'm, I'm fully convinced you're going to have potential jurors that know how to get on that say, oh, I can be fair. I have some opinions, you know, uh, but but I think I could be fair. And so it's really incumbent on the lawyers to try to inject into that process either a questionnaire ahead of time that you send to the, the jurors home and you get them to fill out five or 10 pages of information that can be helpful, uh, or to try to do individ more individualized voir dire, meaning that the attorneys do the questioning more than the judges. Typically, if the judges do the questioning, they just want to hurry up and get there and do opening statements. You know, I mean, it's not that they're being aloof to the concerns, but they're they're going to err on the side of efficiency and getting it done. If you're an attorney and you have the opportunity to meet with these jurors, you really can, you know, kind of play talk show host and spend some time talking to them about stuff that might seem totally unrelated. But you start to get a vibe. Is this somebody that's going to lead? Is this somebody that's going to be more of a sheep in the jury room? Uh, you know, is this somebody that has... Uh, a lot of politics on their mind or that can be kind of interest. Is it somebody that might be kind of a little anti-government flavoring? I mean, there's definitely going to be things that you play armchair psychologist and try to figure out as an attorney, you know, how how will this person's life story, their employment, the, you know, any answers they've had about being victimized by law enforcement, you know, how will that play out here? But it's a, it's it's more uh, more art than science. It's not an easy thing to think about picking a jury up in New York. Because this question comes up all the time in the last year or so. Is there a chance if he's convicted uh, in the trial in New York City that he could go to jail? Yeah, there's always a chance. I mean, there is exposure under the statutes uh, to, to imprisonment. I mean, I have to say that you know, when you talk about a high profile figure, it's one of the nightmares of representing them is that suddenly general deterrence becomes this this overriding notion. Right. So if I represent a professional athlete and they get picked up for, you know, smoking a joint of marijuana, you might know that nine times out of 10, your client's not going to go to jail on that case. Name, everything can change. And I think that I think that holds true with President Trump a little bit. This is kind of a garbage case when you really get down to it. I mean, it's just not. It's not to me, it's not that different than Letitia James's no victim loan application fraud. It's like, where actually is the harm here? Um, and, and so I'm not sure there's a whole lot that would normally put him in harm's way for imprisonment. But in New York, after a trial like that, it's it's really hard to predict. So what's your overall view? I mean, we've been expecting the March 4 trial here in the District of Columbia. That's now off that schedule. Um, the schedule for the next trial was, what is it? Is the documents case in May? I if, think it's tentatively in May, right. And now that this thing has started in New York City following his loss and the civil trials up there and the money he has to pay, uh, are you surprised at how this has been changed on the schedule and what difference will that make, do you think? Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, as much as the trial judge in D.C. and Jack Smith have dug in and, and you know, and even I think kind of uh, stepped on it a little, stepped into it a little bit by by announcing they wanted the Supreme Court to hurry up and rule on immunity while the case was still pending with the D.C. Court of Appeals. Now, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals gave them all sorts of expedited framing. I mean, that, that moved very quickly to get to their result, which is no big surprise. Um, you know, after having litigated some matters for President Trump in D.C. But the Supreme Court basically told Jack Smith, you know, we don't we don't see the hurry. And they, I think they saw through this notion that somehow the public has a absolute need to try this case in March as opposed to later or after the election. And so, uh, you know, I think no matter how much they pushed, it actually backfired. And the Supreme Court's going to take their normal amount of time in dealing with the presidential immunity question. 
Um, I think there is a chance that the, the, the President Trump wins out on the immunity question, not not as an absolute immunity, which is, you know, I think an unfortunate kind of overstating of, of the issue by advocates sometimes. If you can do no wrong, you know, beyond recognition, right? Like you can't decide I'm going to just take over uh, C-SPAN and, and uh, you know, film executions of my political enemies all day. It, it's not anything that, that allows you to go kind of outside the bounds of the presidency. But I do think you could have a more qualified immunity that gets firmly defined by the Supreme Court that will effectively say if it if it has some, you know, connection to the outer perimeter, as they say, of presidential responsibilities, that it's protected. And so, you know, a phone call, for instance, to a foreign leader is just never going to be something that could lead to prosecution because it's going to be within that that definition of the outer perimeter. So you can call it absolute immunity. I don't think it really plays out to be absolute. And I think that that could be a, a huge ruling that comes out of the Supreme Court. I think they're also going to probably rule in his favor on the ballot disqualification issues to kind of put that whole area of lawfare to rest. Um, but look, this is, you know, this is uncharted territory. Anybody that acts, you know, whether it's me or whether it's Glenn or anybody else that gets on TV and acts like they've got it all figured out is is fooling themselves because this is new territory. And, you know, the, the idea of a president having a felony conviction at the time of the election, but it hasn't been perfected through the appellate process. I mean, we're dealing with areas that I don't think anybody ever anticipated even five years ago. Well, Glenn Kirchner, one more clip from him, talked about the Colorado case. And one of the reasons I want to run, it's just a, a 30 seconds, I want to run it and get your opinions because he talks about the big, the word insurrection. When I listen to those justices get bogged down in the details over democracy, and when you look at the plain text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and the history of it, and the definitive ruling by a judge after a trial on the merits in Colorado, as affirmed by a state Supreme Court, that he engaged in insurrection, which we saw with our own eyes, how can they get so bogged down in the details? Mr. Trusty. <laughs> Well, because details actually matter uh, and, and not how pundits view things. I mean, look, I think the Supreme Court, to get a, a higher consensus on the court, and I also think this is principled anyway, I, I think they're going to look for kind of foundational procedural ways to toss this this type of, uh, you know, ad hoc state by state disqualification. So they could look to it and say it's a federal question. They could look to it, I think, and say, Hey, Article Three, by its legislative history and by its plain terms, does not apply to the president. It applies to appointed officers, or what they call inferior officers. So it's not, you know, I think there's a very uh, strong likelihood that they never get to the details of insurrection as much as saying the Constitution does not envision any form of mini trial across the states uh, to determine whether or not a person's qualified to stay on the ballot. Maybe it just comes down to. If you're convicted of insurrection, you're out, but otherwise you're not. I don't know. But those would be kind of foundational ways they could get there. I think I would love for them to get to the actual due process complaint about how these trials are taking place. Keep in mind, Colorado's was bad. I'll get back to it. But yeah, in Maine, I guess it was uh, somewhere in New England. Maine. It was the secretary of state who just literally said, uh, I saw what they did in Colorado and that works for me. He's off the ballot. Well, in Colorado, they did two huge things. They said, we're going to take the January 6th committee, the select committee report, and use that as evidence. And we're going to bring in a sociologist who is the Trump dog whisperer interpreter who can say, when Trump said go peacefully and patriotically, he really meant let's be insurrectionist. I mean, that was allowed in that hearing. And I think, you know, I, I talk to old trial dogs like myself from time to time, and they go, man, I wish I had thought of having a sociologist come in and say everything's the opposite. Um, so, I think the actual procedure was ridiculous. It was expedited. It was, you know, not really with any rules of, of evidence that you could recognize. And and that's a problem in terms of, you know, overall fairness. But I don't know that the Supreme Court's going to get to it. So, uh, again, I suspect they're going to toss it on kind of a more foundational ground. That'll end all of that ballot litigation, or at least for a while. Uh, and it'll make it much more difficult for for lawfare to continue across the country, which is really what that's a result of. Here's a highly personal question for you. Money, money. Did Donald Trump pay his legal bills? <laughs> I do some pro bono work. I don't usually do pro bono work for a year. 
Uh, so yes, I was certainly paid. I, you know, you said money, money. I was like, I can't believe C-SPAN's paying me for this. This is going to be great. But, so it's a very disappointing twist in your question. As you know, we're not. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah. uh, yes, I was certainly, I was certainly paid for my services. So if you worked on it for, for Donald Trump for a year on a, those two cases, um, how much of your time was spent doing that? Yeah, it was. I mean, I mean, look at me. I'm 26. Uh, no, I, it was it was a buzzsaw. I mean, it, you know, and and look, that's exciting as a lawyer too. But it was extremely long hours. There's a lot of people to talk to. A lot of a lot of lawyers in the mix. A lot of strategizing. And one of the things that I take away from it that was really rewarding uh, was that I really litigated an awful lot of pre-indictment stuff. Now I didn't always like the way it played out. But uh, but it was very you know intellectually it was fascinating to be fighting about issues of executive privilege about attorney client privilege and the crime fraud exception uh, you know dealing with also we were we were fighting a multi front fight every day I mean you're dealing with the archivist you're dealing with DOJ you're dealing with other lawyers saying hey we've got a case brewing in New York or Georgia uh, grand jury appearances witnesses you know accusations of of uh, mistreatment of these witnesses so. It, you know, to me, intellectually, it was incredibly fascinating to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, and uh, I, I, I never golfed in front of the president because my golf game is terrible. Uh, but I got to take in the spectacle of Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster a little bit and kind of see the, the high society of those places. And, uh, and it got to be friends with some other lawyers that were in the trenches that are just really good guys. And that, that's going to, you know, outlast any individual case is, is developing those good friendships. So. Uh, th there was more than just money. There was good, you know, kind of good experience and good relationships forged as well. Okay. What did it do for your business? Uh, it's a mix. I mean, you know, I, look, I don't want to say that all of a sudden there was just a million things that came in because of it. Uh, but I think that, you know, the profiles out there, it, does, it certainly does tend to bring in some clients that are, you know, perhaps more conservative in their leanings because they followed what's happened with Trump or they, see me on shows like this and they say hey maybe this guy knows what he's talking about and uh and again i think what what i bring to the table that i brought before president trump was 27 years of being a prosecutor i, I know how they build cases i know some of the rules i know how they tend to conduct themselves and i know a lot of them um so i think that stuff kind of carries over to continue to, to allow business to come in the door and um uh, i don't know how many former u.s presidents i'm gonna have i, I do have another client who is a president in a foreign country and i thought you know this is kind of a cool niche if I'm just going to represent presidents all the time. But I also I love doing cases that you'll never hear about. You know, I've got clients that have needs that have uh, a lot on the ledger that they've done that's good in life. And and some of these pro athletes like Hope Solo that I mentioned, who's just a great friend, a great person. And so I, I still get out of bed and enjoy the job every day, no matter who I'm representing. So the January 6th case here in the district, how serious is that for President Trump? I think it's very serious. I mean, you know, frankly, all of them are, and the federal ones have, you know, probably more uh, more obvious exposure in terms of imprisonment. Um, but I, I think it's going to be a tough ride. I mean, I think everything that you've seen so far uh, makes it seem like you've got a judge and a prosecutor that are on the same page about trying to try this thing before the election. Uh, I don't really understand that philosophy because, you know, what I would like to see from the attorney general is is a mentality of justice of saying look we're going to be incredibly transparent we're going to share all of our discovery early and often we're going to you know we're going to ride this out like we would do any other case because it's important to the criminal justice system and we're just not getting that flavor and so you've got to rush the judgment let's hurry up and go to trial we need to do this before the election that's just not a valid reason and that's getting traction in the dc case i think there's going to be discovery issues that, that could create appellate issues um, in terms of like even the J6 committee. What did they turn over to Jack Smith? What did they not turn over? What interviews never made their way into pieces of paper? So there's going to be some thorny issues there, but I think uh, on the trial itself, it's going to be it's going to be tough sledding, even though the president has some good moments of saying things on Twitter and other places about go peaceful and pa peacefully and patriotically. You know, you're going to have uh, high-powered DOJ lawyers firing hard with, I think, a generally sympathetic jury pool. What happens if the Supreme Court says he has immunity? Two federal cases disappear. Uh, maybe not without a fight. You know, maybe they'll go.
go kicking and screaming a little bit and demand a hearing or something like that. But the reality is, if he's got presidential immunity, I suppose you could you could gin up a hearing to determine whether or not it falls within that, you know, ex- the outer perimeter of, of uh, presidential responsibilities like we talked about earlier. And because there has been some precedent for that when you talk about executive privilege, you know, litigation as to whether or not this was kind of in the course of the relationship that's protected by executive privilege. So you could still have some litigation, but I think it would be, you know, very uphill for DOJ and for the courts at that point. Uh, if, and again, it depends on how the Supreme Court frames it and phrases it, but I think there's a good chance that they could blow the two federal cases out of the water with that. So if he's convicted in the March 25th case up in New York, what what does that do to the schedule, in your opinion? I don't think it's going to affect the federal trial schedule. That's going to drift of its own accord independent of that, I suspect. Um, Give me, yeah, let me in interrupt just to ask you what you mean by that. Can they they well, can't they can't do two, two trials at the same time, can they? Oh no, I agree. I mean, you know, so you're not physically going to have him, you know, split between two districts. But I don't think there's really a March trial coming in D.C. And so I think that what you know, in a, in a strange twist of events, you know, one of the cases that's kind of facially more absurd, <laughs> uh, the Michael Cohen travels that that's going to probably go first in March. You know, I think there's a chance that the Supreme Court comes out, and I, I'm not a perfect predictor of their their timing, but let's say they come out with a ruling that allows for the continuation of the federal trials, you know, denies the immunity, or at least in this case, you could still get back on track, depending on how aggressive the judge is, you know, by late summer, um, you know, before the election. So I, I don't know, but I, I don't think there's any realistic likelihood the Supreme Court is going to expedite things for the benefit of Jack Smith. Uh, I think you're probably going to have a ruling sometime in the summer would be my best guess, late spring or, or early summer. And it's really hard to fairly at least set a trial moments after you get a ruling like that. You know, attorneys have their own schedules. The court has its own schedule. They may make an exception here because they've done that in other ways. But I think it would be I think it's uphill to think of any of the trials on the federal side taking place. Um, much before the late fall, and then you get right up to November, so it could spread into the next year. Who has the first um, take on it, the documents case or the January 6th case here in the district? Who well, can- the documents case was charged first. That doesn't really weigh a whole lot. you know. And, and frankly, again, when you're not incarcerated, if a defendant's incarcerated, everything kind of changes. The court feels compelled to kind of hurry up and move things along. When they're not incarcerated, it's really just kind of like whoever grabs the reins. And obviously, uh, Judge Chutkin on the January 6th case was kind of the most strident early on, saying, we are trying this case, we're not waiting. Judge Cannon in Florida said, I need to hear how this whole discovery and classified document process, the SIPA, as they call the acronym, process works out. So I, I think that's already naturally created a situation where J6 might go before Mar-a-Lago. But we'll know more you know, in, in a couple of weeks. Because status conference case, and then we'll know more if they push the May trial date, which I think they probably, uh, you know, she made the trial date yet, or she might set it for 2025. It wouldn't shock me at all. So I think we're going to see ultimately January 6th, if there's a trial, that one taking place earlier than the Florida trial, but there's, you know, no guarantees. What do you think of Judge Tanya Chutkin? I think she's a very serious judge. I mean, look, you know, Judge, I've had some cases in front of Judge Shutkin. I like appearing in the D.C. bench. Uh, I grew up in Maryland, and, and I, you know, I know a lot of the lawyers that became judges there probably better than I know D.C. Uh, but I think the D.C. bench is a thoughtful one. I just think that, you know, there's um, they're being swept up to some degree in the notion that this case is so important that we have to treat it differently. And I just think that should be something that's resisted every step of the way, that we should not look over and see Donald Trump and say, you know, let's let's treat this differently. Judge Shutkin, I know early on, was subjected to a motion to recuse, um, you know, suggesting that she'd made some comments before that, that kind of tipped her hand that she was going to be biased against the president. Those are always really uphill. Yeah, I'm not saying it was wrong to file it, but the reality is you're asking the same judge, like, to announce that you're biased. And it doesn't usually happen on that first level, unless there's like an obvious like financial relationship. You know, I own stock in Corporation X and Corporation X is on trial. But when it comes down to just the court courtroom flavorings, 
it's very difficult to, to establish any sort of bias. Usually there isn't, but you know, it's also just hard. I mean, transcripts don't capture tone. And, you know, I've been in court for, for 30 something years and there's been times where a judge has had, you know, really nasty things to say. And I read the transcript and I go, well, that doesn't catch it. <laughs> That's not what happened. I was crying and they were yelling at me, but you know, it doesn't always play out really cleanly when you try to establish bias. So I, I think, you know, they're going to have a, a, a tough and serious judge that uh, that presides over a jury that's going to be a difficult one to pick. Early on over here in the district court, when John Laurel, who is Donald Trump's lawyer in the case here, was before Judge Chutkin, he became, um, I mean, this is my view, watching him making some comments that this was a political trial. I'm not sure those are the words he used, but then she stopped everything and she said, I want to just make it very clear. This is a criminal trial and we're going to treat it as such. It's not a political trial. What would your reaction have been if you'd been representing the President uh, Trump in that room? Well, I, I'll back off a little bit in that I don't like to, you know, I feel like that's a little bit of second guessing how other lawyers conduct themselves. And I just, I just owe it to a former client to never play that game. What, what I would tell you is, look, I, I hope that's right. I, I hope that the judge is, is you know, diligent about making sure that politics either within the community or within herself that none of that comes into play here i think that's important and you know whatever happens with these cases i think that the criminal justice system is on the line you know i think that if people walk away thinking that the american criminal justice system has been weaponized to take out a political opponent or that we create new rules because we don't like that guy's politics that, that's a Rubicon that terrifies me, you know, and, and that's not just about President Trump. It's about what happens five years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now. And so I, I hope that we have people. I mean, I guess there's an ultimate lesson here, which is character really matters in the criminal justice system. Like we have to have people of of good judgment and good character that are involved in these very high stake, high profile moments. And if we don't, we're going to suffer the consequences for a long time. I, I had. Uh, a, a friend of mine who's uh, kind of politically on the left side a little bit. He's a Democrat, but I, I wouldn't say he's like crazy left wing or anything. Who texted me just the other day uh, out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him in a while. And he said, you know, DOJ, it's going to take decades to get the DOJ back to where it was. And I, that's a pretty telling thing. If that's where we go here, if that's the lessons that, that are learned because of the way prosecutors or judges uh, conduct themselves, it's, it's going to be a hard lesson for all of us eventually. It's going to be harder for one side of the aisle and for President Trump for now, but uh, but it, it terrifies me that we're changing our system. Th these are small, well, and not necessarily small to the people there in the room, but small questions. <clears throat> um, should the jury be sequestered in the, any of these cases, especially the federal cases? Yeah, I mean, the, the romantic view of sequestration is they put you in a five-star hotel and you eat like a king and uh, and you're just like, sorry, honey, I can't come home and help with the kids. I'm, I'm on this jury. We just can't reach a verdict. You know, there, there's a lot of a, a, a lot of kind of romanticizing of what it means to be sequestered. I think that they'll at least be sequestered in the typical form of saying, do not pay attention to media. Do not, you know, obviously they're not supposed to talk to each other about the deliberations, about the case as it's going on. Um, you know, the sequestration is possible here just because, uh, partly because of the media, you know, it, it becomes tricky to get 12, 13, 14, 15 people into the courthouse each day for a long trial without bumping into the media and being kind of exposed to the circus. And so I, I think it's conceivable. I mean, I had a trial where a um, jury, where the judge's plan was to have the jury meet in Greenbelt and take a bus to Baltimore. <laughs> for the trial, we, we talked them out of that because we're like, dude, that's just terrible for these people. But but the notion was like you can be creative in coming up with ways to um, to keep them away from the public, you know, give them access to the the uh, U.S. Marshals hidden entrance so they're not walking out in front of the media each day, you know, have them meet off site and get driven there. So there's kind of less draconian steps to keep them. Uh, unexposed than just putting them up in a hotel for weeks. But I think there'll be some measure of that for sure, yeah. The jury selection we talked about a little earlier, how, how many times can you throw somebody out of the pool if you're 
either a prosecutor or a defense attorney or a judge for that matter? And can you always get to a 12-person jury with uh, two or three alternates? Generally, you can get to the number. Uh, You know, there's strikes. What we're talking about is jury strikes. You know, when the parties can say, judge, you know, please excuse Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so. Um, you have, depending on the nature of the crime, how serious the crime is, that gives you actual numbers of how many people you can strike with very little explanation. I can just say to myself, I don't like the way that guy's wearing jeans. He should be more dressed up for court. He's not going to take it seriously. Let's get rid of him, right? Whatever your kind of, uh, other than kind of racial or sex-based bias, you've got free reign to do these what are called preemptory strikes. And again, it might be eight, might be four, might be 12. The numbers change depending on what the type of crime is. Uh, Each side can do that. And so that's how you whittle down a pool from like 25 to 12 because each side is using those strikes. But if it is for cause, meaning they are literally biased, there's no limit. And so, you know, in a case like this, when it's high profile, when it's somebody like President Trump, there's going to be a lot of for cause strikes where in other words, I don't have to use the ones that I'm given under the law. I'm just telling the judge this guy can't be fair. It's impossible. If the judge agrees and they can't rehabilitate that juror into sounding like a fair juror, then that person is struck and it doesn't cost either party uh, any of their preemptory strikes. And so, you know, you think about some of the high profile trials like the Boston Marathon bombing case. They were, you know, you can imagine everyone in Boston knew something about the Boston Marathon bombing. But they were still able to eventually get to a jury and a jury qualified for the death penalty, which is another whole hurdle for that. Uh, It took questionnaires. It took days. It took weeks. Uh, I've had capital cases before as a prosecutor where it would take weeks to pick a jury. Uh, And this one won't have the capital element, you know, or the capital offense uh, element, but it will have uh, the publicity part, which is just going to be a rabbit hole. And so it's going to be a long process of picking jurors. And there's going to be a lot of legitimate follow-up questions and a lot of people that are struck for cause. They come in and say, I can't stand that guy. Or, I, you know, a guy wears a red hat in, pretty good chance he's not going to get on the jury. So you're going to have people that get struck for cause, and then you'll have the more uh, artful game of the attorneys doing their own strikes. But they'll eventually get the 12. If they don't, then there'd be a change of venue. I mean, that's, you know, you're probably not going to see a change of venue on the front end for any of this stuff. But if you really have difficulty getting 12 people qualified, that's a basis for the judge to say, let's toss this somewhere else. The problem is, you know, who hasn't heard of President Trump? I mean, you know, it's not it's not like Virginia and Maryland are different than D.C. in terms of pretrial publicity. So. But but here, 92 percent of the people voted for Joe Biden and 5 percent uh, voted for the, whatever, the, you know, I don't even remember who was on the ballot. Um, how can we th- say that that is fair as when we talk about the jury system all right it, it, it's difficult it's a challenge it's definitely hard and you know it's not lost on president trump and his attorneys i'm sure that they're in this you know hornet's nest of of political antipathy but uh but that's what the process is supposed to protect against you know you're the jury voir dire the questioning process of establishing whether they're fair is entrusted with the notion that you'll get those people that are just politicized that can't possibly weigh the evidence and get them out. Whether whether it's successful or not, you know, God knows, but that's the notion. And so you really got to focus heavily. I'm sure they're going to have like jury consultants that come in that, that work for the defense. But at the end of the day, you've got to convince a judge, sometimes against that judge's desire, uh, that, that a whole bunch of these people need to be struck for cause. And again, my concern is you're going to have people that feel very strongly, but are not going to let that show. And they're going to find a way to get on that jury because they want to be part of this new phenomena of celebrity jurors. You know, they write books, they go on TV and they announce I'm the guy that, you know, did this or that either for or against President Trump in D.C. Again, it's probably 90 something percent that it would be people getting on as sleepers to hurt him. Uh, but the, the test is really the, the process of the judge and the attorneys sifting through it all. How often in cases you've had in your career as a prosecutor, have you had a hung jury? Oh, I've had I've had a few. I mean, you know, sometimes when you're a prosecutor, a hung jury feels better than an acquittal. Um, it, it happens, uh, you know, and there are ways to try to stop that from happening, too. As a defense attorney, you kind of welcome it. <laughs> you know, if you're a defense attorney, a hung jury is a win. 
because the prosecution may or may not even re-prosecute. They may walk away. If you know the split, it can be important. If you know it's seven to five for acquittal, that tells a prosecutor this case isn't that good. If it's 11 to one because you have one squirrely person holding out, you know, that's probably going to get a retrial. So hung juries happen. Judges have different kind of fuse lengths for when they'll declare a jury hung. Uh, and sometimes they'll just keep telling them, keep working, keep working, and it works itself out. Other times the jury gives a note early on that says we are absolutely deadlocked. It's not going to change. Let us go. And that can tend to call the bluff of, of the judge. So it happens. I don't know. As a percentage, it's a small percentage. It's probably, I don't know, 10% of the time, 5% of the time. I asked, uh, but it could happen here. I asked Glenn Kirshner what would happen if there was a hung jury in the district. And from his point of view, he said the prosecutor would definitely retry. And I said, what about it? The next one's a hung jury. He said he'd retry again. What's your take on that? Well, hope springs eternal. <laughs> Glenn, Glenn, is, Glenn wants to be the one that tries it if it gets hung, it sounds like. Um, and, and he would probably do a pretty good job. But uh, look, I, I think it depends on the circumstances. If... You know, they're not it's a, the U.S. attorney is by definition in a political position. And so if a trial played out terribly uh, and hung, like, say, 10 to 2 to a, uh, that's a mess it is wrongheaded. And, and I think some prosecutors would realize, you know, we're not going to put the country through this. We're not going to put the defendant through it, but we're not going to put the country through a round two. Uh, but conversely, if they found out, oh, it was 11 to 1, there was one guy that pulled out a red MAGA hat at the end and said, I don't care, I'm not going to listen, then they would say, well, that's just unfair, unjust, and we're going to retry it. But you have to see, you really can't prejudge any of that in advance. It, it depends on the split. It depends on how, you know, objective minds view the way the evidence went. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think there's, I think it's the starting point is, Jack Smith's personality is that he would probably retry it until the end of time. Uh, but I don't know that that's really fair. I think that, that if he saw things breaking terribly wrong or some counts getting acquitted while they hung on others, you know, even he might reconsider at that point. So we need to close this out and get you back to the task at hand being a lawyer. What last question to you is give us your overall take on the whole January 6th event and the fact that 1,300 people have been charged in one way or another, and there are about 170 in jail, prison somewhere. What's your take on it? Yeah, I, I mean, look, it's a it's an emotional firestorm uh, for this country. And I, I think we're very divided. I think the country is very divided in terms of whether or not, you know, this is that it's been overstated or not. I will tell you, and this is just me personally, this doesn't really affect how I represent clients. Um, you know, if you assaulted a police officer, uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it, I think there's I think there's definitely different gradations of what people did on January 6th. I, I'm not um, I'm not in love with the notion that people want to second guess every word that came out of President Trump's mouth for a couple of days and purposefully ignore some of the stuff that seems pretty favorable to him, like go peacefully and patriotically. We love the cops. And so, you know, there's a lot of this is kind of the big Rorschach test for our time, right? People that are in favor of President Trump hang on those words. People on the other side hang on the others. I'm not convinced that uh, that insurrection hasn't been thrown around much too lightly for what it really is. And uh, and I am concerned that anytime you have a prosecuting authority announce a kind of a body count mentality. You know, if you go to the U.S. Attorney's Office webpage, it tells you we've now prosecuted 1,400. And if, you know, it feels like Westmoreland and Vietnam, right? Like this, this not should not be the metric for justice to celebrate. They also uh, just, these are kind of macro structural things that bother me about it. When you say we're, we're letting in prosecutors from around the country to help us prosecute these cases, you know, what do you think they're getting? You know, they're getting prosecutors that feel very strongly about January 6th and that want to put people in jail. And and I think, you know, it's a it's a little bit warped to have this celebration of the numbers and to to make it a separate new unit in the U.S. attorney's office and to celebrate it like it's a war as opposed to individualized meeting out of justice, which is what they should always be focusing on. Jim Trustee, thank you so much. The IFRA law firm here in Washington, D.C., 
We appreciate your time and your insight. Uh, great seeing you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.